fraud, fraud, fraud. It is a constant battle in the real estate world, especially wire fraud schemes. Some of the scariest but easiest ways to lose every penny in a transaction. But how do we combat it? Listen and find out. I'm Dalton Elliott. This is The Real Estate of Things. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Adam Chowdhury, thank you for joining me today, good sir. How's it going, Dalton? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, I meant to ask you this beforehand. Where are you based out of? Where are you located? I am in Newport Beach, California, so Southern California. Loving it, loving it. We've been we had a dry spell. We're in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, yep. Lima One Lima One Capital Headquarters. I've Yep. Tripping over my words today. Um, and we've had like three weeks, four weeks, maybe even of virtually no rain. Yep. Uh, it's been over 100 degrees most days, just insufferable. And now we have like a week of scattered thunderstorms and rain coming in. So you don't, I him and haul about the weather to you because you don't know anything other than spectacular weather out there yeah we get rain out here and people uh get into car accidents they don't know how to drive it instant so. <laughs> i want to hear no more i want to hear no yeah, more exactly. <laughs> but uh yeah you um you're 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 you have a pretty interesting uh firm that you run you're, you're president of funding shield yep. uh we have a relationship with you at Limon capital yep. and for the audience a very, very interesting firm so at a high level, tell me what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So we focus on kind of risk and fraud uh, in the broader real estate and, and mortgage sector. But the specific area of risk and fraud that we're focused on is surrounding wire and title fraud. So payments risk in terms of those payments that go out in very sizable numbers, as well as the fact that there's a process in terms of how you engage with title, uh, what coverage and recourse you expect to have with, with title partners, settlement partners, um, both from the issuance of title side, the title insurance side, as well as the disbursement and kind of the settlement side. So we're helping lenders make sure they're working with valid, valid parties. We're streamlining processes, kind of verifying data earlier on in the life cycle, pre-close, into closing, uh, and also providing kind of diligence and verification services, kind of being your eyes and ears, and and also figured out some pretty cool ways to do some um, kind of financial structuring given our backgrounds so of the principles here. To provide some warranties and additional recourse that you know firms like Lima One and investors and warehouse partners and funders love. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's just like the worst fear of a lender. Really, is like a bad actor who can cause kind of a total loss on something. Oh right? yeah. Because we do risk. Like our our chief job as a lender, I see, is risk mitigation. It's like yes, we want to lend the money out, but that's not the that's secondary to. Yeah mitigating risk how do we make sure we know that whenever we put a dollar out the door that's going to come back home to us and absolutely if, if you're if you're a good actor in the lending space you don't want to take back properties we're not a property management company we don't want to manage projects all over the country like we genuinely want every single deal if we could have a zero percent default rate we would be spectacularly happy you know just by virtue of doing hundreds of millions of dollars a month in volume yep. you don't have a zero percent default rate uh, but whenever you do have something default, you have some kind of collateral to take back and, and do something with. But in the Absolutely. case of uh, wire fraud, you mentioned you could, a bad actor, attorneys, like all different kinds of, uh, as I mentioned, I think I used this earlier, like barbarians at the gate. So talk to me about like, like, like what are some of these barbarians at the gate that you're seeing right now in the space? 
Yeah, so I think the you know broadly, um, you know, kind of thinking about this business was designed um, with uh, Ike Suri, our CEO, and myself. Um, we have different backgrounds, and the way we built the product kind of explains the risk that we're managing. And I can get right into kind of what what that risk is that we're seeing today versus when we launched the company years ago. But Ike's background is a technologist. He's launched companies um, from his you know the, the great immigrant story coming from India. First client as technologist was you know Goldman Sachs and Cantor Fitzgerald launching trading floor systems in New York and London, and just an incredibly intelligent guy. Um, always thinking about data security, transmission of data. Um, for a specific client use case. And so that brought him all the way up through the networking topology from router switches to fiber optics, et cetera, but always thinking about how to secure the data. So industries like airline ticketing to BART surveillance, like in the Bay Area, airline surveillance, satellite communication um, for the broadcast networks, right? He worked on those projects um, and, and brings that acumen of how to take highly regulated, highly sensitive private data that cannot be altered, touched, manipulated um, because it's highly sensitive and making sure it works for the workflow, all right? And, and that's kind of what we're doing in the mortgage space as it pertains to sanitizing data, cleansing data. And I kind of come from it from a different perspective. I came back, I came from the Wall, Wall Street structured finance side. So I worked at companies like Greenpoint Credit, Goldman Sachs, uh, Greenwich Capital, RBS, and then left that to join Ike uh, about eight years ago, nine years ago now um, to launch private investments and then um, raised my hand um, and with his uh, guidance uh, as an owner operator, went from being a banker, financier to really wanting to become an operator, which is a pretty big shift. Um, but luckily to say we're, we're here today and excited to be uh, a successful company. But part of that journey was coming to companies like yourself um, and going to lenders and saying, what are your pain points when you're dealing with settlement agents and closing agents? And in the residential world, it's a little bit different than what it is in your world. So you go to like a guaranteed rate or a Quicken or a Bank of America, they may be interfacing with tens of thousands of unique relationships of settlement agents in a year. They're also mm -hmm. regulated a lot differently than you are. So some of the motivations on the, yeah. the residential side of the business are more around, I need to diligence these third-party service providers because the CFPB tells me I have to, and the OCC and the Fed, depending on how you're regulated, tells me I have to. Beyond that, from a risk perspective, that's where the overlap is between resi regulated and kind of the world and private lending markets you guys operate in, which is, I guess, the the broader term is how we bucket kind of the small bell, the bridge, the fixed flip, um, and kind of the value add lending um, proposition that you know firms like yourself are, are kind of bringing to the table. So that intersection is around how do I make sure that when I send money out, it's going to the right party, that there's actually be title insurer backing um, to make sure that I get you know kind of coverage from a title insurer. Uh, and beyond that, in a world where there's about 80,000 parties that can provide these services across the country between attorneys, settlement agents, title agents, uh, escrow companies, how to make sure that they're actually approved, verified, validated in good standing. And the added kind of challenge that maybe a wholesale business in the residential sector and your business as a whole has is that many times your borrowers are sophisticated real estate participants. They have relationships with these folks. They might be sourcing properties from these folks. The seller might be driving the settlement and title parties, right? You really don't have as much control of that kind of independent third party settlement party that's supposed to sit there and say, party A, party B, okay, we're going to do this closing. Yeah, they're still going to have their their opportunity, you know, their responsibilities to act in a prudent and in, in a manner, depending on the type of closing. Um, they have to act as a fiduciary or whatever the case may be. But long story short, um, 
you're taking risk that the execution of your closing instructions are carried out and fulfilled by that closing agent. Now, the risks are like any other organization. Are they equipped to handle the file order and load that they have? That was a big issue when the refi boom hit. A lot of the lenders in your space are saying, I cannot get my loans closed because everyone is so busy dealing with, you know, the 55 you know, refi apps that came in last night that the title file order is just getting delayed, delayed, delayed to all the way through to, do they have the right sort of staff working on this stuff? Three challenges that all organizations are dealing with. Can I hire the right people? Right. And can I afford to hire those right people? Um, so there's all sorts of issues that are basically more operating risks. And then we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the cybersecurity risk, which is a new big one, which is a business email compromise, the hacking, the phishing, the impersonations, the, um, the bank accounts that, of these settlement agents that are getting hacked into. We had a situation last week with an attorney. We are the party that told him and identified that his email server and communication uh, wasn't from him. He had no control of it. He had a bunch of emails going everywhere as a law firm partner and the escrow officer confirming and verifying a bank account with their phone number, their phone systems got taken over. Long story short, anyone who's just doing the pickup phone call, check the phone wiring instructions and whatnot got defrauded. Our clients didn't lose a penny, but we know that that's going to be a new fraud that's going to get reported in the market. We're working with the FBI and other regulator, you know, regulatory agencies right now, as well as criminal agencies to pursue this. But I'm jumping around a lot, but the reason I'm, I'm kind of trying to paint the picture is at the end of the day, there's a process that Lima One has to follow, just like every other lender. They have to make sure that they're working with bona fide good standing parties. They're sending money to the right place, that the documentation you're actually using to close a loan file is accurate. And that's so important in a business where the loan balances are very large, as well as the parties, including the broker, the borrower, the seller, they're all sophisticated real estate parties. It's not like the residential business. So it's even higher risk profile in many cases in the residential business. Yeah, to me, the I like how you bifurcate it, the operator side of the fence versus cybersecurity. I think that's a really good way to bifurcate it. And the, um, yeah, both of them have that total loss potential. Yeah. Uh, the operator one is, is has always been a little, in a way, I guess I get a little more of a stomach churn when I hear that, <laughs> although the cyber one is broader and bigger. I guess there's a more personal flair to the operator one. Like you've been communicating yeah. back and forth with these people yeah. and then you find out at some point that you, you have the, the oh no moment of like something's not right here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been party to some of those transactions and it is just the absolute worst and you know that you know everybody every uh lender of any size is insured yeah. right for things like this but that like getting a claim approved for something like that takes a very long time if it ever happens yeah. and sometimes like you said the the sums of money are large the average loan amount in this space for most lenders a few hundred thousand yeah. Uh, just nationwide broadly, you know, you go to California or other markets and it's going to be higher, yeah. but you're talking into the six figures for the average transaction size. So it's, it's horribly scary. So which, which road do we want to go down right now? Do you want to talk about the cyber side of the fence a little bit? I think, um, let, let's talk about the operating side, because I think a lot of times, yeah. um, uh, the, the biggest challenges for, for kind of the things that we expect to see, maybe go there and then we can go to the cyber, the cyber route, because I think that talks about the broader Perfect. digitization of the overall real estate market. Right. But on the, on the kind of, on the piece of kind of the non cyber related risks, it's really about execution of order. It's about following through and making th sure things are registered and filed properly. 
Um, and beyond that, it's also making sure that the transaction data lines up. And I know this sounds crazy, but when I was on Wall Street and I was buying whole loans and we were having to figure out how to price these loans, I would ask some basic questions, right? And everyone said, oh, don't worry, there's a TPR, third-party review on these loans, it's great, da 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 And I would say, how are these loans, how is it titled on these loans? Who did the title policies? They're like, why do you care? First American's on it. I said, I love First American. They're a great company. But all these individual agents procured these title policies, and some of them were still yet to kind of record. So I'm taking a tremendous amount of risk on the recording risk, on the execution risk of that closing instruction by that closing agent. And so I think that's where I think the this space has gotten it right. The residential side kind of says, oh, I have some documentation in a file. I'm fine. I have a closing protection letter. It's in the file. I'm covered. I, we asked, has anyone looked at it? No. Does anyone check to see if the typical Ulta forms of coverage, which Ulta does a great job of making sure that there's some best practices around what should be in place in terms of coverage. But there is no policing that Alta is doing of its agents in terms of are they the right agent? Are they even approved to issue that policy? Is somebody crossing state lines or jurisdictions or, or issuing you paper that's really not backed by title insurer? And then whose risk is ultimately is that? And at, at the end of the day, living the world we live in post 2008, it's the lender's risk. No one, there's not a court in yeah. the world that's gonna say you as an is a, a sophisticated lender who has knowledge as to what is required to commit, you know, conduct a close should understand the requirements of title because it's so important as it's part of your underwriting. And unfortunately, that's where the gap exists. A lot of times lenders are very good at lending. They may have a few underwriters that understand title because they've been around the block enough, but you can't always put this onus on your underwriters, especially for a group like Lima One or others that are growing, scaling, and trying to basically find the most optimal process to get the right skills in terms of skill sets from your FTEs the combination of technology that comes on top of that to augment that, to fulfill and fill those skills gaps so that you can really get that loan through the process as fast as possible. Because why are we doing this? Apt to close. We want to keep that window as short as possible and give as much certainty to our clients that A, we're going to give them a good product. B, we're going to protect them from themselves in many cases. And three, mm -hmm. we're going to protect us as well as our investors and our partners to make sure that we have the right reputation as an industry so that these, these you know, events don't cause issues or ripple effects in terms of our reputation. Yeah. It's always good to hear like a partner space focus on kind of an aligned interest, which is you know, speed, certainty of execution and just quality deals. Yep. And like you and I were chatting, uh, I think a little bit before this and, you know, we, uh, that's at the forefront. If we could have no foreclosures, nothing like that, <laughs> solid. Let's just let's just lend on good projects and, like you said, save the client. Right. In a lot of cases, uh, that's a tough thing to accept. Yep. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like we only do deals that we believe are going to pay off. It just circular back to, you know, we're, we're not a uh, we're not looking to aggregate a bunch of real estate here. But on yep. the uh, so so, would you say that you know? Has there been in the last few years a material swing away from the operating bad actor side over to the cyber side, or is it kind of a continuing the same balance? Yeah, I think that um, the biggest trend that we see in the title space is um, there's a lot of consolidation taking place within the organizations, right? So a lot of mm -hmm. these not larger national title platforms are coming in. There's also uh, a, a move for some of the more tech-driven 
uh, you know, kind of uh, underwriters and kind of tech-based players. And there's also some great new providers out there like Spruce and, and others that I'm sure you guys use or senior closings that have really done a good job of kind of balancing technology, building really good processes um, to help execute files better. But I think the last couple of years, it's still a pretty good mix of when the big frauds happen, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of times there's, there's collusion amongst a fraud scheme. There's elements of cyber-based fraud in that, um, but a lot of times it's really insurance fraud. Um, I think a lot of us forget title is nothing without the insurance that backs it, right? It's yeah. kind of what greases the wheels and makes us feel comfortable um, because a typical title agent or law firm isn't going to have millions of dollars of capital lying around. They're mostly LLCs. They're distributing like any other LLC is to partners at the end of the year. So from an effective capital perspective, all they really have to fall back on is really the you know insurance policies and then whatever other personal assets that a, you know, a, an operator may have, they want to save their reputation and name. Now, in a fraud event, they're clearly not looking to save their reputation and name. They're looking to defraud somebody or they've borrowed against client funds. That's another one that we see a lot is the IELTSA accounts. And like the big ones that you guys read about or hear about every couple, couple of five or six years, yeah. it's basically the IELTSA account or escrow account is being used as a Ponzi scheme, right? They're borrowing against it. It could have started out as, hey, I'm covering payroll. Then it's, I'm covering my car payment. Then I'm covering my XYZ, you know, extra girlfriend's car payment or yeah. whatever the hell it is. And then it gets out of hand. And then what they start doing is they start delaying closing, issuing more title file orders, sitting on more funds to cover that short balance in the hopes that they can earn back with their income to pay up and to cover that short balance. And on, unfortunately, like most Ponzi schemes, by the time you figure out that, hey, this is a problem, you can't really fix it. And so that's where a lot of those risks reside is that they're borrowing against their client funds, which they should never be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do want to reiterate something. The vast majority, I have to say 99% of the title companies that we deal with, at the end of the day, once we come in and kind of find out that there might be some data inconsistencies, licensing problems, data inaccuracy, they want to do the right thing um, and they want to get it corrected. Yeah. That being said, there's still that 1% net out there that is kind of trying to bend the rules, do what they need to do, um, move funds where they need to, to get things uh, through the door, either because it's a client facilitation thing or it's an income issue or it's a squeeze on staffing. Um, and there's things that we do to help them avoid that as well as help work with the title insurers to say like, look, this closing agent in Texas is doing a ton of business, is originating a ton of business in Oklahoma. First American, you might want to consider, op, you know, give, granting them a license if they qualify in the state of Oklahoma. They meet all the other qualifications that we see, right? So why don't you do it, all right? And so that's the sort of kind of dialogue we're having because about 30% of the transactions we touch, and we published this data with Housing Wire, Reuters, Bloomberg, was about 36% the last quarter have at least one element of data inaccuracy, the wrong bank account, a bank account for an unaffiliated party to the closing being used, um, all the way through to transactions, 5% of transactions were not in the system of a title insurer at the time of close. That is not acceptable. No. That should never be happening. That means a title commitment you receive, the CPL, the wire, any of those other title documents are not authorized, registered, and in the system of a title insurer at the time of close. That is, in some states, insurance fraud. It's a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. In other states, it's like, okay, this isn't good. But we're not going to, you know, kind of dig any charges against anyone. What we do here at Funding Shield is we say, guys, this has to be in the system of the title insurer. We have to be in, able to independently verify and validate that that transaction exists. 
um, in terms of the actual title file order. So we're, we're taking kind of meat and potatoes, kind of credit style review processes, putting our automation on them, as well as using our AI to help kind of figure out where are the gaps compared to our existing data, which is based on about 50 to 90 billion of transactions per month that are going through us every month. So we've got a very, very rich amount of data, um, probably the largest data set in the industry pertaining to settlement agents out there today. Yeah, you've you've sufficiently horrified me with your statistics here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sort of starting to start to get a little hot in here. No uh, wonder, man, you're you don't have to worry about this. We're here to partner with you. That's so true. We're, we're, that's yeah, yeah. Breathe all, easy. All is well. <laughs> Ooh, I was stressed for a second, but now all is well in the world. So now that you've horrified me from the operating side of the fence. Let's go into the cyber side with a few minutes oh, left, and uh, yeah, just unpack that Pandora's box for me. We've, okay. we've, uh, yeah, I mean that's a constant battle for us. We yeah. run into, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know what the, the proper technical term is, but it was like attempted attacks, attacks. Yeah. Like that's that is a more frequent occurrence. Uh, than I would have guessed if I, you know, wasn't at a financial firm. Uh, So, so yeah, what, how do you, how in the world do you go about combating that other than, you know, just trying to lock down everything as much as you can? Like what? Yeah. So there's a couple buckets of, of why cyber criminals do what they do. All right. Um, And then we can talk about the industries they hit. So one is they kind of want to cause disruption, right. For political reasons or to make a, a message or to show that there's, you know, create lack of trust in a system, company, or a service. And typically those are going after like the industrial sector, the food sector, the um, the network, right? Like the actual like grid, power grid, right? They're trying to attack those sort of things to kind of show that, you know, you know, country X is trying to show that country Y's regime is not capable of providing basic infrastructure and services, right? And they have a political message associated to it, or they're just trying to wreak havoc. And then beyond that, you've got folks that are trying to extract data. Right. And they're trying to extract the data because they can take that data and package it um, for financial gain. And that's still a bad cyber criminal, but they're kind of a step removed. They're kind of like packaging a bunch, bunch of data. And a lot of times, a lot of that data people are opting to, to share. Um, so they're taking data that people are opting to share to then use that data that they've amalgamated to now have a better digital persona to be able to get the information that's private that you may have out in cyberspace, like your credit card information and other mm-hmm. sorts of data, social security, tax transcripts, right? They're trying to get all that. So they're, they're, they're bad, but they're not as bad as the last bucket, which is the guys that are going right for the money, trying to steal your money because they're just there to, to steal a dollar. Now, mm-hmm. if I'm the US government, I'm scared about this, this guy over here that's trying to steal money, but I'm much more scared about the guy that's trying to hack into our nuclear defense system, of course, for obvious reasons. So a lot of those sort of complaints go to the FBI. The reason the FBI deals with it is because they have field offices throughout the country. They deal with financial crimes. It's part of their workforce. They have set up a, uh, an entity called the Internet Crime Center, IC3. So you guys should, everyone should uh, look at the IC3. We can put it in the notes after this. It's something everyone should bookmark. And just, you know, uh, my parents, I tell them about it, right? God bless their soul. They're, they're older. They're retired. I tell them, like, look. Go on there once a month to see what what are the sort of attacks that are taking place because it a lot of attacks elder there's elder abuse there's stuff that attacks the real estate sector, and the biggest part of what's going on in kind of the real estate settlement sector why is it so attractive? A the number of recurring transactions and two the size and quantum of the dollars that are going through those transactions. So if I'm a criminal and I can steal a bunch of credit card data, we've all dealt with this. The first charge is ten cents, the second charge is a dollar, the third charge is fifty dollars, and 
-hmm. If you don't catch it, they try to take a thousand and they move on. Yeah. And they're doing this across hundreds, if not thousands of accounts of, of compromised data to figure out who they can get to and they buy that data on the dark web and yada, yada, yada. The cyber criminal that's attacking a real estate transaction is watching, monitoring, hacking into email communication systems, getting past your firewalls and sitting patiently. And a lot of times that point of entry is usually the borrower, mm -hmm. an attorney or a settlement agent who's on like a Google or a Yahoo mail still about 30% of the ones we see out there still don't have a proper enterprise email solution. I, I don't, you know, I just don't get it. Don't start me on that one. Um, and then beyond that, the other weak point of entry is this thing right here, as well as a guy that logs into um, his work account at a Starbucks on a public Wi-Fi without a VPN. We're all in financial services by now. Get your technology team to give you the right credentials to securely access anything sensitive. If you're touching any applications, the LOS, your bank account, logging into your banking portal, you should be going through certain levels of data security. This is like a little bit away from our subject. So I'll leave that for another guest or another session where we can bring in someone to talk about kind of how to secure your devices and your, your, your traffic. But that's the point of entry. Once they know that the transaction is taking place, they then try to figure out what are the weak points I can attack in this transaction. Is my best bet going after the borrower because there's a down payment going into a residential transaction or you know, is my best bet trying to intercept communication between a lender and a settlement company by hacking into the settlement company and sending out artificial documentation and data. And now I may not even have to hack into the settlement company. I can impersonate them, set up a fake website, send wire instructions and a phone number for a phone call back. That's the big one that we see right now is that the impersonation, which is a combination of phishing, kind of digital, kind of creating a digital persona um, and kind of a identity fraud. And then on top of that, it's also business email compromise, right? Because a lot of times they're also hacking into legitimate email systems. So there's, it's not just one type of cyber attack that's taking place. It's numerous and it's very coordinated uh, around specific transactions. And that's what we see. And we see it all the time. Our clients see it all the time, but luckily for, for them and for us, we have workflows that we go through and procedures that we go through, including requirement around source data. We don't take self-attested data from anyone. And that's kind of not the zero trust principle, which is another topic that's kind of big out there. It's very hard to, to operate in that zero trust environment, but it's around who is providing these representations and who can back them. And yeah. ultimately we've been able to be a party that because of our workflow, our independent nature of our data, we can provide warranties to our clients to back what we do. And that's why clients like Lima One like us because we are truly party pursue in this risk. It's a specific mm -hmm. risk, but we back it right? Up to $5 million per transaction. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. all the more horrified, Adam. But again, we're good because we got you. <laughs> Everything's good. I, I think I'm a happy person. I, you know, the world has tons of risks, right? Like, you know, like I remember one of my first jobs was working in insurance banking and I like met some of these insurance mm -hmm. riders and they could walk down the street, right? And they're like, they're like looking, oh, don't walk here. Like, you know, you're, you're in New York City. Don't walk over the metal grates, right? Like you're falling. I mean, like at some point you got to live your life. But I think there's certain yeah. prudent actions when you're running a financial operation you have to take. And most lenders today have pretty sophisticated um, enterprise risk frameworks. And I think a lot of the emerging players in your space, we work with a lot of the investors too in this space that are buying and aggregating loans. And they mm -hmm. often have some of the smaller originators come to us or guys that are starting out that sell to them because they may be for formulating some of those best practices. This is one of those underbelly risks that's kind of hard to find the right skill sets and the right processes to manage. So we tend to have clients in this space that are just starting out, you know, doing their first loan. 
all the way through folks like yourself for, you know, seven, eight years into, you know, to this business, which kind of makes you one of the more mature players, um, as well as guys who securitize and, and have a shelf and we're written into the securitization guideline. So yeah. we're, we're, we think about this stuff the way you guys think about it, which is how do I demonstrate a control stick in place? How do I clean up the data? How do I make my operations and back office team more efficient? Because that's the only reason Lima One uses us is because we help lower your operating cost. And then how do I make better quality data go to the closing? So I'm not dealing with, you know, messed up documentation post-close. Because that's another piece of what we do too, is we're getting things right earlier. You're not dealing with these trailing docs because that's expensive mm -hmm. for all parties. Yeah, very, very true. I, I have one, uh, if I could switch gears for a second, yeah. one completely off topic question. You have some baseball caps behind you. It's very confusing. It's so confusing. Uh, I'm a Yankees fan, so you know, no harm, no foul. But uh, you have you have Boston Red Sox. You have the Angels. What's what's going on back there? Who uh, do you uh, who do you root for? So, so uh, I'm a Boston. I'm a Boston guy through and through. Um, the cheapest way to watch the Boston Red Sox is at the Angels Stadium. So there you go. <laughs> I'm no, I, I have a lot of respect for Otani. I think he's he's great. Um, He's right down the street, and you know I typically go watch the series when the Red Sox come into town um, every year. But yeah, I'm a Boston guy, so you know for all you New Yorkers, please don't hate on me. Um, I did live in New York for about ten years, New York and London for about ten years, so I, I you know yeah. I miss the old Yankee Stadium. Um, I'm sure you do too. Um, yeah. But um, you know it's always fun to go to the Home Run Derby Stadium, or the, the new Yankee Stadium, to watch people knock on the park. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. You know. Nothing better than a Fenway Frank, man. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> this, is like, this, is, this is going off the rails quickly. You know, I, I was, um, I was a, a wee boy, but I went to – my first Yankees game was Roger Clemens' 350th win, and it was also the last year at the old Yankee Stadium. Oh, uh, and been to the new one a few times. And uh, I love everything about the new one except the fact that they like quadrupled prices whenever they yeah. that they built the new one. And like you, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. The Braves are two and a half hours away. Yeah. Uh, so that's the that's the close, highly economical Major League <laughs> Baseball viewing as opposed to uh, plopping down a G for uh, solid seat, legend seats at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, absolutely. So, Plus the, the uh, new price of tickets to fly up there is, is gone crazy. Yes, flights are insane. I went down to so we go to IMN East yep. every year, yep. which is SFR conference. Yep. And you know, I've been going uh every year I've been here. I think our first conference was in 2016, first time we did it, May 2016. And like clockwork, like four, four fifty um to get out and back, and it was close to double that. Yeah. Just going from South Carolina to South beach oh, yeah. and yeah, flight prices are insane and across the board. Some, um, had a friend who went out to Irvine, California yep. and it was, it was four figures for a main cabin ticket. Yep. That's so what uh, is going on? <laughs> that's the world we live in. So <laughs> I think it's going to no, cause no. more people to attend these conferences cause it's just harder to rationalize, uh, one-off sales trips, you know, of course for, for key accounts and whatnot, it's different, but, um, yeah, we, we see the same thing. We're kind of like going through budgets and, and forecasting like how do we want our travel and our sales to work. So we'll be at the IMN. We'll be at the Western Secondary. We're sponsors here for the Resi side. And then um, the CREF, the CMBA CREF. Vegas is still relatively cheap. They, I think they've factored in the, the cost to fly there. Um, so they're trying to make the, the rooms cheaper. So I think Vegas is going to see a lot more um, conferences pick up. So 
we'll be at the California, the CMBA CREF um, conference as well for their commercial lending side too. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Cool. All right, my friend, I can't thank you enough for carving out some time. You you horrified me and then reminded me that we're completely safe. <laughs> so uh, you, you, I'm, I'm a roller coaster of emotions during this podcast, Absolutely. but I, I learned a, a ton about uh, kind of the barbarians at the gate and how we beat them back. Yeah. And uh, thank you for all that you and your firm are doing to combat the bad actors out there. Thank you. And of course, thanks for your business and taking the time with me here and uh, uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thanks again, Adam. And thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.